a new series. It's called Disillusioned. Uh, we're we're going to talk about doubts and what do we do when we doubt. The reality is, as believers, doubt is a part of all of our spiritual journeys. Uh, and I think sometimes as Christians, sometimes in church, if we're not careful, uh, we, we ignore those doubts, we run away from those doubts, and we don't address them. Uh, and the reality is when we ignore it, it just gets bigger, right? When we ignore it, it becomes a, a greater distraction, a greater problem. It can be like the elephant in the room. Uh, and so the next five weeks, we're going to speak to that elephant. We're, we're going to talk about the doubts that we all wrestle with. Uh, I think this is an important topic, an important series, anytime. Uh, I think it's an especially important topic right now. Because when the world gets extra chaotic, when, when things become uh, unfamiliar, when we're going through things that are uncomfortable as we have over the last 13, 14 months, I think that's definitely an environment for doubt to, to increase, uh, for, for doubts to grow in our lives. And so we're going to take the next few weeks and we're going to look at doubt. What we're going to do each week is we're going to dig into the life of a different individual in scripture who wrestled with some doubt. Uh, Next week and the week after, we're actually going to look at the same person. We're going to look at a guy named Peter, and we're going to look at two different instances where he wrestled with doubt and dig in to his doubts. In week four, Dwindle Nelms, many of you know Dwindle, uh, he's going to share with us about a person who we don't even know their name, uh, a father in the book of Mark who's seeking healing for his child, and he makes this confession. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So he's, he's going to dig into with us, how, what do we do when, when we have some doubt mixed with faith? What, how do we handle that? The last week of our series, Pastor Braden, our youth pastor, is going to wrap the series up with us, uh, and he's going to look at probably the most famous doubter in Scripture. He's going to look at a guy that, that actually he is legendary for his doubt. We call him Doubting Thomas, uh, one of the disciples, uh, and he's going to discover and help us discover a whole lot to his story that we don't always associate with him, uh, so, some things that he was actually able to go on and do and that God was able to do through him even after his profession of doubt. I think it's going to be a really encouraging way for us to finish this story because the reality is as we go through this series, all of us are going to find ourselves in different ones of these stories. We're going to see the doubts that we wrestle with. We're, we're going to see the doubts that we have and the ways that those flesh out. So I'm really excited to get to dig into this with you. Today we're going to start out with a person who you're probably somewhat familiar with. We call him John the Baptist. Uh, A better name for him would actually probably be John the Baptizer because John the Baptist makes it sound like he was a part of a particular American denomination uh, and he was neither American nor a part of a denomination. Uh, he, He was known as someone who baptized people. It was an incredible ministry that God had given him. You're probably familiar with his story, but in case you're not, I'll give you just a little bit of a summary of who he was. John was the biological earthly cousin of Jesus. Uh, in fact, he was the slightly older cousin of Jesus. His mother, Elizabeth, was supernaturally pregnant beyond the age where she should have been able to conceive. Her and her husband, Zacharias, were barren, and God appears to Zacharias in the temple and, and tells him, or this angel appears and says, hey, you're going to have a baby, and, and he laughs. And anyway, God, God comes through, right? And so they have this baby named John, uh, who is somewhere probably between three to six months older 
than Jesus, Jesus' cousin. We know that their mothers were, were pregnant simultaneously, but that his mother Elizabeth was pregnant first. Uh, side note on John's story. John's story is a big reason why myself and, and many others like me uh, are, are firm believers why abortion is not a good thing. Because while John was in his mother's womb, the Bible says that he leapt when Jesus entered the room. Jesus also in his mother's womb. So there was something spiritually happening in John before he ever breathed oxygen, before he ever exited the womb. Now, I don't say that to, to shame anyone who has had an abortion. Uh, we say that we, we serve a God who gives us grace. We serve a God of forgiveness, and so we're not here to point, put anybody down or, or, or to dig into anybody's past. We are here to say if you're ever in the situation where you're considering that, we do not believe it's God's best. Uh, we, we believe that God wants us to choose life. Uh, we believe that babies in the womb are, are, are precious in God's sight. Uh, and so well, that's one piece of John's story that, that before he ever could even lay eyes on humans, he worshiped Jesus, that he's the first person we discover in Scripture who, who reacts to the presence of God. I think that's pretty amazing uh, that he does that in the presence of, of the earthly Jesus. Uh, and so he goes on to, to, to have this ministry, right? God has called him from before birth to have a special ministry to be the prophet who prepares the way for Jesus, who goes before Jesus and begins calling people to repentance. In other words, God chose John to begin preparing the soil of people's hearts for the Savior who was to come. John's job was to, to cause people to begin wrestling with their sin, begin realizing their need for a Savior. And he embraced that job wholeheartedly. You probably know his story, but he went out and lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and dressed in camel's hair. He was a weird dude, right? Uh, he, he was unusual, but God used him in, in a powerful way to cause the people of Israel to wrestle with their sin. In fact, the Bible tells us that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. That, man, I need to be washed. I need to be clean. And we even see him baptize Jesus himself. Uh, and, and so he's got this amazing, amazing role. This person who, who loves Jesus from the beginning, who worships Jesus from the beginning, who puts his whole life on the line to honor Jesus and prepare for Jesus. And yet that guy even experiences some doubt. That's encouraging to me because sometimes I feel like, hey, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't have doubts, right? Uh, I'm the person who stands on this stage and reads from the word of God. There must be something wrong with me if I would be in my position and I would experience doubt. And yet this man that God used so mightily in such great ways, God used him despite some doubts that he had too. And I find encouragement in that. I think you may find some encouragement in that this morning. We're going to pick up John, or John's story in Matthew chapter 11 if you want to turn there, but first I want to read to you from John 1.29, this declaration that John makes. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was a man of great faith. He knew who Jesus was from an early age. He watched Jesus grow up. He knew what Jesus was called to do and prepared to do. And yet he hits a season in life where he goes through a crisis. He goes through a challenging situation. And that life experience causes him to start having some questions about who Jesus really is. What happens, if you're not familiar with the story, is John gets arrested. 
There's a, Her- a, a king named Herod Antipas, and King Herod was a sinful man, an ungodly man, to such a degree that he decided he wanted his brother's wife. And so he steals his brother's wife and marries her, and John won't sign off on it. John is bold enough as the prophet of God, as the man of God, to use a phrase of our generation. He speaks truth to power, and he says, no, this is sinful. This is wrong. I don't care your political influence. I don't care your power or your might. This is not something that God approves. And so Herod and his wife get angry, uh, and they have him arrested. And spoiler alert, if you read on in the story, it's going to end with John's head being cut off and served up on a silver platter. Very gruesome, very gory, very, very kind of just makes you feel bad, right? Kind of story. That's what is facing John. Now, we don't know how much of that John knew. Uh, my guess is as he's in prison, he had some idea this was a possibility. Uh, we, we don't know if he knew he was going to die, but the chances are he probably had the concept that this was at least on the table that he may be about to lose his life for telling people about Jesus. And so we find John in, in something of an existential crisis. He is wrestling with his call. He is wrestling with what he's done with his life. And we pick up the story in verse 2 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. It says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him. Now, when it says his disciples, it's not talking about Jesus' disciples. It's talking about John's disciples. John was such an influential leader that, that he he also had disciples. In fact, some of his disciples left John's ministry and joined Jesus's ministry when Jesus came around. And, and some people were intimidated by that and worried by that. And John made this amazing statement about Jesus. He said, he must become greater and I must become less. He wasn't protective over his ministry and what he had. He said, no, my, the whole point of my existence is to build him up. The, the whole reason why I'm here is to make him greater. I think that's a great mission statement for any Christian. Man, that he must become greater, Jesus must become greater, and I must become less. So it says, John sent John's disciples to Jesus to ask him, verse 3, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? John, the cousin of Jesus, the man called by God from before his birth, the man who sets his whole life aside and on hold in order to point to Jesus, comes to a point of pain, a point of crisis, a point of devastation where he begins to question, is Jesus even who I thought he was? Make no mistake, church, this is the most important question of life. Jesus' disciples have a conversation with him about this very question, and, and they come and they're like, well, who are you? There's different people who are saying different things. Some say you're Moses. Some say you're Elijah. Who, who are you? And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this amazing confession, right? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon that confession of faith, I will build my church. That's the question we all have to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? Well, John around 33 years old, in prison, potentially facing the death penalty, he begins to wrestle with that question. Is Jesus who I thought he was? Author John Bloom wrote a, a blog post on desiringgod.org where he wrestles with this and speaks to this. Talking about John, he says, but stuck alone in this putrid cell, John was assaulted by horrible accusing thoughts. What if he had been wrong? 
There had been many false prophets in Israel. What made John so sure that he wasn't one of them? What if he had led thousands astray? This is heavy. This is hard. This is a difficult question to wrestle with. I put my whole life into promoting you. I put everything I have, all my energy, all my faith, all my time. I put, man, man, I've invested all of it into building your kingdom, and now I'm not even sure you're who you say you are. What if I've deceived thousands? What if I've misled people? Have you ever wrestled with your faith and wondered, man, I've witnessed to others? I've testified to others, I've pointed others to you, I've raised my kids in the faith, and now I'm not even sure if I believe it for myself. That's a dark place to be. That's a scary place to be. John is wrestling with some real heavy, very real questions as he's in this prison cell. The author goes on, John Bloom, he says, the thought of being executed for the sake of righteousness and justice he could bear So John's not freaking out because he may be about to die. He says, but he could not bear the thought that he might have been wrong about Jesus. His one task was to prepare the way of the Lord. If he had gotten that wrong, his ministry, his life was in vain. Have you ever doubted God like this? Not just doubted things about God. As we go through this series, we're, we're going to discover Peter in a moment where, where he takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to lose faith. We're, we're going to see Peter uh, have a question where he questions God's plan and what God's up to. We're, we're going to see this father have a question where, man, I, I believe you, but I don't believe you completely. I can see it this way, but I can see it this way. We're going to see Thomas who questions the supernatural questions, man, can God really do what God says he can do? Those are all big questions and ones we're going to wrestle with, but, but John's question is even bigger. He doesn't question what God's doing. He doesn't question God's plan. He questions, who is God? Is it really you? It's a question we must all wrestle with and a question we must all answer. Today, we're going to answer the question. Look at the question. Dig into the question. What do we do when we doubt God? Psalm 14.1 says very famously that the fool says in his heart there is no God. This is not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not someone who's denying the existence of God. He's not someone who's choosing atheism or even agnosticism. Even in his question, he doesn't say, is there a Messiah? He simply says, are you the Messiah? He understands implicitly, I know there's a God. I'm not even questioning that. I just don't know if you're the one. What if we had all lived our life for the glory of Jesus and found out at the end that Jesus wasn't the one? How devastating would that be? That's a question you don't expect to be asked in church very often, right? Why? Because it's uncomfortable. That, that, That hits us a little uncomfortably, but I think it's a question we should all wrestle with. How confident are we that we've chosen correctly? John wrestles with this question. Author Wade Bearden teaches that there are three different kinds of doubt. There are three different ways that believers can wrestle with doubt. He actually says there may be more than this, but he says there's at least these three specifically. He says the first kind of doubt is intellectual doubt. This is when we we intellectually question what, what God has said. So this is when we, like, we wrestle with, okay, science may say this, but faith says this, and I can't figure out how they come together. 
Uh, and so we have those intellectual doubts. It, it may be questions intellectually about how, how could a good God allow suffering? How could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? It's, it's intellectual doubts. This doesn't add up in my head. The things that I see don't make sense. And so sometimes as believers, we wrestle with intellectual doubts. Secondly, he says we have emotional doubts. Emotional doubts are, are, are doubts from pain, right? This is the doubt that's caused when, when you watch a loved one suffer, and die. So it's not really the big picture questions of suffering. It's not how can you let something good happen, something bad happen to a good person. It's how can you let something bad happen to this person? How can you let something bad happen to me? How, how is it, God, that you were good, but my life is not? Right? It's emotional doubt. We all experience emotional doubt from time to time. And then thirdly, he says we experience moral doubt. Moral doubt is when we question, is God really good? God, your word says this thing over here is wrong, but I think this thing over here is actually right. This is what my feelings say. This is what I want it to be. And so am I going to choose what God's word has to say, or am I going to choose my feelings? Am I going to decide that that I have a greater understanding of right and wrong than God does? That's moral doubt. The reality is all three of these doubts are very prevalent in our culture right now. All three of these doubts are prevalent in the culture, which means they're probably prevalent in the church. The truth is, believers have wrestled with all these doubts for centuries. This is not not something new to our generation. This is not a new challenge for us. These specific questions may look different in our generation than previous generations, but every generation wrestles with these things. Every believer wrestles with these things. So if we look at John's story, what kind of doubt is he experiencing? He's at the emotional doubt, right? He's not intellectually questioning, is there God? And and he's not morally questioning, is God good? He's saying, are you him? I'm hurting. This shouldn't be happening to me. I don't understand why this is going on. Jesus, I just need to know, are you the one who I believe? Are you really the one that I was supposed to prepare for? Did I lead all these people astray? Have I lied to thousands and thousands of people? We, we can feel John's pain in this question. We can feel the, the, the doubt that has arisen in his life. Here's what I believe about doubt. I believe that if we ignore doubt, doubt only grows. But I believe that if we embrace the doubt, if we address the doubt, if we work through the doubt, doubt can actually be a blessing that leads us on a journey to a place of deeper discovery of who Jesus is. Here's why I believe this. One, because I've seen it fleshed out in my own life. In fact, most of the time in my life, when I find myself wrestling with doubts, it's, it's kind of an indicator for me that I'm probably not as close to Jesus as I have been at some point in the past. Right? I'm not saying that doubt means that you're in sin. I'm not saying that doubt means that you're a failure. But usually my intimacy with Jesus isn't at its highest if I'm wrestling with doubt. So it's a sign, hey, I need to, I need to do some tune-up work. I need to do some maintenance on my spiritual life. Now, occasionally that may not be the case. We don't know that John was in a bad place here spiritually. He may not have been. But, but his circumstances created some doubts and some questions in his life. There's a category of study called apologetics. Uh, Apologetics is essentially the study of defending the faith. 
How do we address these questions in the culture, these questions that people come up with against Scripture, against God, against the Word, against faith, against biblical morality, whatever the questions may be. And so there, there's this class of individuals who are brilliant, uh, who, who work in apologetics, who help us understand how to argue and defend our faith. Uh, a number of my favorite apologetics or apologists uh, actually started out as atheists, started out as agnostics, started out as unbelievers. In fact, it usually seems to happen in college, but they set out to write a college paper, a thesis, perhaps even a book, disproving the existence of God. And as they lean into their doubt and begin researching to show that God doesn't exist, a crazy thing happens on the road to Damascus. And Jesus shows up and reveals himself to them. And so that's the story of Josh McDowell, who, who wrote an incredible book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, that, that I highly recommend if you want to study apologetics. It's the story of Lee Strobel, who famously wrote a book called The Case for Faith and The Case for Christ. Uh, that, that's the story of many who work and operate and teach in the field of apologetics. Now, the reason why they end up in apologetics is that's their testimony, right? This is how I came to Jesus, so I want other people to come to Jesus this way. Uh, And God uses these people in amazing ways. So I'm not intimidated by your doubt. More importantly, God's not intimidated by your doubt. If you'll actually pursue it, if you'll lean into it, if you'll study it and go after him, I believe it can lead us into a really good place. And that's my prayer for us the next five weeks is that we would not ignore doubt, we would not allow doubt to fester and creep up, but we'd actually address it, actually deal with it, work through it, and allow God to show us himself. Jeremiah 29, 13 puts it this way. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What happens when we begin seeking? We begin digging into these questions of doubt. God promises you're gonna find me. But he says, you find me when you seek me with your whole heart. can't be half-hearted. It can't be uh, lethargic and mediocre. God, I really want to find the truth. I'm going to dig into this, and if I'll put my heart into it, if I'll truly study it, he says, you're going to find me. That's the promise of his word. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7, 7. He says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you, right? For anyone who asks, receives. For all who seek will find. For everyone who knocks, the door will be open to them. That's the promise that Jesus has. And so he's not scared of our doubts. He's not scared of our questions. He's not mad at you because you've brought something up and said, God, this doesn't seem to add up. So bring it to me. And as you seek me, as you seek me with your whole heart, you're going to find me. That's the goal we have for this series. So let's pick John's story back up in Matthew 11 in verse 4. It says that Jesus replied to them. How did he answer the question? How, how did he respond to John's disciples who are ultimately responding to John? As John brings up this question, are you the Messiah? Are you really him? He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So Jesus answers John's question. Is this the answer that John was looking for? Probably not. You ever ask God a question you didn't get the answer you were hoping for? Right? Two hands and a foot, right? Most, most of the time that I ask God a question, I don't always get the answer that I'm looking for. He didn't just say, yes, John, it's me. 
right? He, he didn't give him the answer he wanted, but he did give him an answer. What I want to show you today, first of all, is four ways that Jesus does not respond to John's doubt. And I want to expand from that because I believe it's four ways that he doesn't respond to our doubt, at least not most of the time. He does not respond in, in any of these ways. Three of them, he never responds in this way. Uh, four things that he doesn't do, and then I want to show you how he does respond. So the first way that Jesus does not respond to our doubts is Jesus doesn't get angry at us for our doubts. Notice Jesus doesn't get mad at his cousin. He's like, John, you, you know me. Right? We, we've been through so much together. How could you question me? He, he doesn't play the, the authority card. He doesn't say, how dare the created one challenge the creator. Right? He, he doesn't puff himself up and get mad and get angry at John's doubts. I think sometimes as believers, we think that God gets pretty mad that we have doubts. I, I think sometimes we get afraid to bring those things to him because we think that somehow we're going to upset him. That somehow this makes us less of a believer. The reality is God knows that there's nobody in this room with perfect faith. Not a one of us, certainly not me. None of us have 100% perfected our faith. Our faith is being perfected. And if it's not perfect yet, there's going to be doubts. There's going to be questions. So God does not get angry with us for our doubts. He made us. He knows they're there. He just wants us to bring them to him. He wants us to allow him to speak to him. He says, cast your cares on me. Why? Because I care for you. Let me know what you're wrestling with. Not because I don't know, but because when you bring it to me, now I can begin to speak to us. Jesus doesn't tell John, you're a failure. You've humiliated our family. Right? He doesn't play these cards in anger to him. He doesn't respond in anger. The second thing Jesus does not do is Jesus does not disqualify us for our doubts. This is the one that's so encouraging to me. Because I'm not John the Baptist, but I have leveraged my life for the name of Jesus Christ. It's determined where I went to school, what I do for my career, who I married, who I associate with, what I do with my day, right? Like, I've, I, I, I'm certainly not trying to compare myself to John because he went all in, all in, right? But I put a whole lot on the name of Jesus, I've built my life on the name of Jesus, and I'm so grateful that, that when I have doubts, he doesn't say, that's it, you're not qualified anymore. I'm so grateful he doesn't say, you're not good enough. And the reality may be that, that you're not called to being a pastor, you're not called to a public ministry like John was, or like I have been, but all of us have a ministry call. All of us have a purpose that God created us for to fulfill. And you need to know that your doubt does not disqualify you from your destiny. Jesus doesn't respond to John and say, John, now you've wasted it all. Now you've thrown it all away. You served me for 33 years. You baptized thousands of people. You called Israel to revival to get them ready for me. But now at the end of your life, you question me and you've thrown it all away? He doesn't disqualify John for his doubt. Praise God, he doesn't disqualify us for our doubts. Thirdly, Jesus doesn't coddle us in our doubts. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, John, I'm on my way to the prison. We're going to sit down and we're just going to have a good long hug and I'm going to wipe away your tears. He doesn't say, John, everything's going to be okay. Which, by the way, everything is 
going to be okay? Jesus knows that John's story doesn't end at the end of a, sto- of a sword, that John's story doesn't end with his physical head on a platter. Jesus knows that that's actually the ultimate deliverance for John, that there's no more pain for him, there's no more sorrow for him, there's no more prison for him, there's no more beatings for him, there's no more questions for him, and no more doubts for him, because the moment that that sword comes through his neck, John is transported to the presence of God. He's allowed to spend eternity with his maker, right? He knows that good days are coming for John, that this story has a happy ending, but Jesus doesn't reassure him that. See, sometimes I think Jesus is trying to tell us, hey, it's time to put on our big boy pants and our big girl pants, right? Like sometimes he doesn't come alongside us and coddle us and and just give us the encouragement that we're looking for. I think sometimes when we doubt, we just want somebody to hold us and tell us everything's going to be okay, right? And that's not what Jesus does. The reality is John faced some very significant persecution. And for us in our generation, as Americans, we don't usually face a lot of persecution. This isn't something that that we're prone to experiencing. And I don't know that we're going to. I'm not a prophet. I'm not standing up here and saying, man, it's doomsday and everything's falling apart and everything's going to be terrible. But here's what I will say. The word of God doesn't promise us that we won't. In fact, Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And so if I do the math there, it sounds like he's saying you're probably going to face some persecution. I think sometimes as American Christians, we get a little entitled that, hey, because of the Constitution, because of the Declaration of Independence, we're never supposed to go through this stuff, and they're always supposed to be for the church, and we're supposed to always walk in favor. God didn't promise us that. The reality is we may face persecution, and if it's not us, it'll probably be our kids, And so as believers, it might be time for our generation to to pull up our big boy pants and our big girl pants and prepare for the fact that it's not always going to be okay, that there's going to be some difficult times and some difficult seasons and definitely prepare the next generation for that because if we don't, I think we failed them. We have unprepared them. Jesus didn't leave us without preparation. In fact, he even went so far to say that blessed are the persecuted. That there is a blessing for us if we experience persecution. So we don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to to campaign against it and and picket against it. We just need to be ready. You know what? The world's probably not going to like us. The world's probably going to have a problem with some of the stuff that we stand for. Why? Because the enemy doesn't want people to come to Jesus. The enemy doesn't want people to know deliverance. They don't want people to know the freedom and the fulfillment and the peace and the joy that is found in Jesus. And he definitely doesn't want them to know salvation. He definitely doesn't want them to be saved from their sins. And so we've got to be okay with that. So Jesus doesn't coddle John in his doubts. He doesn't tell him what he wants to hear. He doesn't give him the answer that he's looking for. Number four, Jesus doesn't ignore our doubts. Praise God, he doesn't ignore it. Praise God, we don't pray to to a wooden idol or a stone idol. 
that has no capability of responding to us. We are not speaking empty words out into the air and and speaking them out into the atmosphere or out into the universe. We are talking to the living God when we pray. We are talking to the God who sits on the throne and we're talking to a God who responds. He is not distant. He is not detached. He has not forgotten us. He is not ignoring us. He does respond. Now, he doesn't always respond the way we want him to because he's God and I'm not. But his promise is he will respond. Jeremiah 33.3 says, call to me and I will answer you. If you call, I will answer. And he says, I will tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. He says, I got all kinds of knowledge, all kinds of information, all kinds of stuff that you haven't discovered yet, you haven't understood yet, all kinds of things I'm just waiting to share with you. If you would just get alone with me, if you would just open the door and ask the question, if you will call to me, I will answer you. Not I may answer you, not I'll get back to you when I've got time, not hopefully, not possibly, I will. Jesus doesn't ignore or abandon John in his doubts. He doesn't coddle him in his doubts. He doesn't get angry at him for his doubts. He doesn't disqualify him for his doubts. So what does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond to his doubts? The same way that he responds to us, Jesus answers our doubts with truth. He answers our doubts with truth. John says, hey, are you the Messiah? And instead of simply just saying, yep, that's me, you got it right, he tells him what's going on. Here's what I'm up to, John. You tell me. The same way he does it with the disciples, right? The disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, everybody says you're this and everybody says you're that. Who are you? And he says, well, who do you say I am? Why? Because Jesus doesn't always spoon feed us. He doesn't always make it easy for us. Sometimes he wants us to wrestle with the question. Why? Because he understands that the wrestling builds our faith. The wrestling builds our strength. That's why we say things here like, you're free to struggle here. Because we believe that there's something to be found in the struggle that when we struggle with doubt or we struggle with sin, that when we struggle with whatever it may be that's keeping us from where God wants us to be, when we choose to struggle with it, it's going to build some spiritual muscle. It's going to build us and prepare us for where God wants us to be. It's why he doesn't just save us and take away all of our struggle. He doesn't save us and take away all of our sin. He doesn't save us and take away all of our temptation. He actually allows us to work through the temptation, to work through the sin, to work through the doubt, because he knows that that's going to bring us to maturity. So Jesus responds to our doubt with truth. You tell me, John. I'm opening the eyes of the blind. I'm bringing bringing healing to the lepers. I'm restoring the ability to walk to those who are lame. I'm setting the captives free. I'm raising the dead to life. You tell me, John. Who am I? Now, we don't know how John responds to that when his disciples get there. My guess is John kind of face palms. Of course. Of course you're the Messiah. I knew it all along. What was I even thinking? Why did I, why did I even ask? He probably starts kicking himself a little bit and, and kind of laughing at himself a little bit. If he's anything like me, I hope you laugh at yourself because uh, I know God laughs at me. Uh, so if he's laughing, I'll just laugh along with him, right? He probably, what, what am I thinking? Of course, I knew that. 
I, I think this answer is actually encouraging to John, even though it's not coddling to John, because John had a maturity in his faith. And he hit a crisis. He hit a point of doubt. He wrestled with some questions. But Jesus answers with truth. The reality is when we call to him, he answers us. He says, and I will tell you great things, unsearchable things. In other words, things that you can't find anywhere else. You can search the world for these answers, but you're not going to find them anywhere but in me. Things that you don't know. Jesus responds to our doubts with truth. He speaks truth to our questions. So here we find John and says, John, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I've done. Here's what's happening. Who am I? Am I the Messiah, John? So what do we do with doubt? Sherry Bell, who works for Josh McDowell Ministries, one of my, my favorite apologists, uh, guy who's had an incredible impact on me from, from a young age. Sherry wrote an article, and, and in it she said this. It's an article is called Doubt When It's Beneficial for Christians. She says that God knows we will have questions and doubts because we can't see the big picture like he does. That's how he repeatedly tells us in his word to trust and chill. Now, your translation probably doesn't say chill. Mine doesn't say chill, but I love that interpretation. It's trust and chill. In other words, he's saying, breathe, relax. It's going to be okay. I've got it all under control. I've got a plan. I know it might look bad right now, but the story hasn't ended yet. I'm up to something. Just breathe. Take a deep breath, Teresa. It's going to be okay. He says, trust and chill. She says, do not fear, right? God says again and again, the most common command in scripture, don't be afraid. Do not fear. But she goes on and says, but God also tells us to pursue the development of our faith. Doubt is a great motivator to fuel this pursuit. Now, she obviously works for an individual who found Jesus because of his doubts, whose doubts literally fueled him to find Jesus. So that's a pretty easy statement for her to make. She's come alongside and come into a ministry that's founded on this principle, that our doubts can fuel our faith, that ultimately our our doubts are going to lead us to Jesus. So here's my take-home point from today. We're going to dig into specific doubts as we go through the series and, and what to do with those. But when it comes to any doubt, do this. Use your doubt to fuel your faith, to fuel your pursuit of Jesus. Don't ignore it. Don't half-heartedly deal with it. Man, if you're wrestling with some big questions right now, wrestle, struggle, but bring them to Jesus. Bring them to God again and again in the book of Psalms, what I love so much about the book of Psalms. David is brutally honest with God. You, you can almost hear David yelling at God sometimes in the Psalms. What are you doing? And that may seem like so disrespectful and dishonoring. And, and in a way it is, right? Like he's God and we're not. But the beauty of the God we serve is he's chosen to condescend to us. He's chosen through Jesus to come and be one of us, to experience our pain, to bear our struggle, to be with us in the midst of our doubts and our questions. And so we can go to him, that we should go to him. Use your doubts to fuel your pursuit of Jesus. If you find yourself wrestling with questions, like I said, it might mean you're a little further from God than you used to be might mean you're a little further from God than where you should be. doesn't mean you're a failure. 
John certainly wasn't. Doesn't mean you're disqualified. Doesn't mean God's mad at you. It doesn't mean we got some work to do. And that's okay. We've all got work to do. None of us have reached a point of perfect faith. But he's calling us to keep growing, to keep building, to keep seeking, to keep finding, to keep calling so he can keep answering. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Are we ready to seek him wholeheartedly? If we will, if we allow our doubts to, to fuel us in that direction, your doubt can be the greatest blessing. Your doubt can be the best thing that ever happened to you as it pushes you towards the truth.